and welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership podcast series. My name is Scott Miller, and I serve as your weekly host and interviewer. We are honored, humbled, delighted, elated that uh, after about 140 episodes, On Leadership with Scott Miller has become the world's largest subscribed to and distributed podcast dedicated to the topic of leadership in the world. You can consume this podcast in a variety of ways. You can listen to it in audio on your favorite podcast platforms, SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and a dozen others. And you also can view it each week in an email while we have, we have our guest either here live in the studio or in the pandemic, usually virtually, on our screen via Zoom. You can subscribe to our podcast in the weekly newsletter that comes out every Tuesday at just about 8 o'clock Eastern time by visiting franklincovey.com and clicking on the On Leadership button. We'd be honored to have you rate us and review us on any podcast platform and also invite everyone in your organization, your family and friends, your spouse, your mother-in-law, whoever it is, to tune in each week and listen to a different guest. Now, you know from all our previous episodes that about every fourth or fifth episode, we have a Franklin Covey thought leader, someone like Chris McChesney, Corey Kogan, Lena Renee, Pamela Fuller, Stephen M. R. Covey. In fact, it was Stephen M. R. Covey who, of course, wrote the book, The Speed of Trust, that has now sold over two million copies that became friends with today's guest and referred him in to me. Now, each day, we get four or five requests from publicists, interviewers, publishers, agents to have their client on our show. We decline most of them because we like to curate our own guests because our topics are usually around leadership, developing culture and such. And the referral from Stephen M. R. Covey hit the sweet spot. His friend and now my friend and colleague, Bobby Herrera, is our guest today. Bobby is one of the co-founders and the principal owner of the Populous Group. And he also is the author of the book that is today's topic, the Gift of Struggle, Life-Changing Lessons About Leading. Bobby Herrera, welcome today to On Leadership from your farm in the northwest of the U.S. Healthy underdog, Scott. Great to see you. Great to see you, Bobby. Uh, no pun intended. Your book is called The Gift of Struggle. This book is a gift from so many points of view. I love one of your many endorsements on the back of the book from the famed leadership expert, renowned best-selling author, Patrick Lencioni. He calls you a powerful leadership book from the best CEO you've never heard of. I followed your career for some time now. I, I told you off camera that it took me several weeks to actually make it through your book because every two or three pages I had to stop and go do something you'd inspired me to do. And you know what? I got a couple of chops uh, in terms of years and reps. I'm being a leader, wrote a few books myself, read a few books from the set. But you really inspired me back to some basics of what it's like to be a great leader. Before we talk about the role of leadership, Bobby, I'd love it if you take a few moments and reintroduce yourself to our guests and viewers a bit about who you are, what the populist group does, and a little bit of kind of what your own leadership journey has been like. Yeah, wonderful. Well, first, thanks for the kind words, Scott. I appreciate it. Those are very kind words from, from Patrick. I, um, I'm a student of struggle. I'm a small town kid from Southeast New Mexico. I'm one of 13, number 11. So I still eat with my elbows on the table. And I uh, raised my hand when I was 18 to join the army. I'm a proud army veteran. And those lessons have helped carry much of my journey throughout my life. 
you know, after a few professional chapters, I started my entrepreneurial journey in 2002. I often call the first five years of that chapter the most fun I never want to have again. Learned a lot of lessons, many of them I share. And uh, I've been building a story and narrating a story with my organization now for, it'll be 18 years on September 9th. So I think technically that makes us, what, a senior in high school? But I often say that we flunked at least three or four times. So we're just a really big junior high student and we're learning. Uh, Populous Group is my wonderful community. Uh, at our core, we're building something bigger than ourselves. And uh, we're maniacal about our culture and building trust. And the problem we solve for the world is really simple. We help organizations out there manage their non-permanent workforce. And you know, most organizations have a great grip on their permanent workforce, but when it comes to their non-permanent workforce, it can be a, a big mess for them. We help them untangle it, help them better manage it, help them make better decisions around it. And we've been narrating a story around solving that problem now for, like I said, almost 18 years. Bobby, you delicately dropped the phrase, you're a student of struggle. What does that mean? Well, in English, Scott, it means that, uh, you know, my leadership philosophy is really simple and that we all struggle, but every struggle teaches us something. That's the gift and leadership is sharing those gifts. And that's uh, a philosophy that I've been building on uh, for many, many years, you know, growing up and, you know, my family story, struggle was the only consistent theme that we had you know, for all my formidable chapters. And for many years uh, before I had uh, some wonderful moments that happened for me, uh, I didn't think I would ever check what I call the ultimate box, Scott. And that is, will my story matter? Because I didn't think that I would ever escape that narrative. And you know, fortunately, I was able to reframe my view on life after some uh, formidable experiences that, 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 that I've shared in many of my storytelling. And, you know, I've, I've built my whole climb in leadership and my, my life around that philosophy that every struggle teaches us something. And when we really mine for the gift and start sharing it, like that's, that's what makes my heart sing. And uh, I've been very, very fortunate to be able to live that imperfectly, albeit, but I've, that's how, I, that's how I've been living my life for many, many years. Bobby, I'm going to have you teach and reteach our audience and listeners today some very valuable leadership lessons that you and I have both learned sometimes through the same similar struggle, vulnerability, and mess. One of the reasons that your book spoke to me was because you and I, although we don't share a similar upbringing, my sense is my upbringing was more privileged than yours, you and I share a very similar leadership trajectory, kind of two steps forward, one step back, sometimes three steps back, two steps forward. What I would like to do is acknowledge that I've read thousands of books in my career, and without dispute, the opening of your book is, I think, one of the most profound that I have read. You call it the bus story, and I'd like you to take your time, and without hijacking people's interest to buy your book, which I'm sure many will today after this conversation, I'd like you to deliberately recreate the bus story and then perhaps follow that with why that's been so instrumental in your own 
ongoing leadership style. Sure, wonderful. Um, Scott, when I was 17, my brother Ed and I, we were on a return trip home from a basketball game. And along the way, we stopped for dinner. And we were excited. We were uh, celebrating a big win. And as we were approaching our stop, uh, I started getting this big pit in my stomach because I knew that the excitement was going to end for me. Well, when the team stopped for dinner, everybody unloaded off the bus, you know, except for me and my brother, Ed. You know, at that point in our family story, we didn't have the means to play sports and afford dinner. As I mentioned, I'm one of 13 kids and struggle had been the only consistent theme in our family story. And so I was very accustomed to staying on that bus when the rest of the team would, would get off for dinner. My mom would pack us our dinner and it's just the way things were for us. Well, a few moments after the team unloaded, one of the dads to the other players, he steps on board the bus. And as he's walking towards the back, he teased me a little bit because Ed had outscored me that night. And then he said something to me that I will always remember. Bobby, it would make me very happy if you and Ed would allow me to buy you dinner so that you can join the rest of the team. Nobody else has to know. All you have to do to thank me is do the same thing for another great kid in the future. And I mean, to this day, Scott, I, I can barely tell the story without goosebumps on my arm. And I, it's hard for me to explain the wave of gratitude that I had at that moment. And you know, before I could even acknowledge his question, I was, I was getting up out of my seat. I was acknowledging yes. And uh, I remember stepping off the bus that evening and I had no idea what I was going to do with my life. You know, I'm 17. I can't see three feet in front of my face. And, uh, all I knew is that perhaps a year from then, I had a desire to raise my hand and join the military. But outside of that, I was clueless. But I, I vividly recall when I stepped off that bus, although I had no idea what I was going to do, I knew why. Like I would somehow, some way, figure out a way to create something that would allow me to pay forward that kind act to other kids like me who were born on the wrong side of the opportunity divide. And that moment helped me reframe and start to reframe my story. And you know, I mentioned in the beginning, you know, one of the biggest things that I didn't think I was able, gonna be able to do is what I call check the ultimate box. Well, will my story matter? And that moment, that kind act, it changed many, many things for me. Uh, the one I'm most grateful for is that it gave me hope, hope that I didn't have at that point in my life, that I too could do something someday that would allow me you know, to check that box. And if I did something to pay for that kind act, it would give me meaning. Um, and that morning, that moment, that, that evening, just, it, it just transformed my life. And you know, I often reflect back on that moment Scott, and it's packed with so many uh, lessons. However, uh, there's an interesting backstory that I think is important to share. You know, the gentleman that stepped on board the bus, you know, his name's Harry Teague, and uh, Harry was a very successful businessman in the community. And the narrative that I told myself was that 
you know, people like him, they don't see kids like me. And with one kind act, not only did he teach me that I was wrong, but he taught me that one of the single most important parts of leadership is seeing and encouraging potential. That was the very first time in my life that I felt seen. And it just, it changed everything for me. You never know. Bobby, I'm emotional listening to your story. I don't want to seem naive that, you know, this is the first time I've heard a story of struggle. We all have different struggles yes. in our mm -hmm. life. But the story, I think, we could spend the whole podcast talking about the lessons from that story. No doubt. Um, I'll take it a step further because I think you mentioned in your book that you reconnected with this gentleman some years later. And tell me how that went and what his um, response was. I, I did. I do share that in the book. Um, yeah, I think a couple of other important points is one of the, the story, that bus story also carries one of my biggest leadership mistakes, Scott, and that you know, when I started my organization, Populist Group, in 2002, like that moment, it was raging like an inferno inside of me. And like it was my invisible force driving me. And I wanted to bring that bus story for, to life. And uh, the big mistake that I made was you know, nobody knew that story. You know, my brother knew because he had been on the bus. My wife knew. Outside of that, I didn't share it. I didn't have the courage. Uh, it was a vulnerable moment for me. And for 10 years, I kept that story to myself and people could feel my intensity. And uh, they knew I wanted to build something special and unique and that I genuinely cared for what I was building. But to them, I was just another intense entrepreneur. And when I finally changed, uh, changed my narrative there and developed the courage to share the story, you know, I often say that it helped me begin the transformation of my company to a community, and we've been building on it ever since. Well, you fast forward about uh, four years from the time that I carry, you know, shared that story with my community, and one summer day, I just picked up the phone and I called Mr. Teague and I told him the bus story. He remembered coming on board the bus. Uh, I told him the impact that it had on me. I told him everything I'd been doing to pay forward that kind act, some of the fortunate things I'd been able to do. And it was a very special moment uh, for us. And, you know, a few days later, I get a, I get a note from Harry and in his note, he says, you know, Bobby, thank you for calling me. Thank you for sharing the bus story. I don't mind sharing the many tears that I shed during and after that call. You made me feel like my life had mattered. And uh, I treasure that note. I'm so grateful that I reached out to him. And you know, last year when I launched uh, The Gift of Struggle, uh, I had a big speaking engagement for the launch in Detroit. And we had a very fortunate crowd. And I didn't tell a soul that I was going to fly Mr. Teague and his wife in. And uh, I did something I'd been waiting 33 years to do. I hadn't seen him since I'd left for the military. And my brother and I bought him and his wife a meal, a lot better than the cheeseburger he bought me. And uh, it was a very special day. And at the end of my storytelling session that night, I introduced Mr. Teague to a wonderful crowd there. And he got a raging standing ovation. It was, a, it was a special moment. I wanted him to feel the impact he had made. Bobby, thank you for your vulnerability. I think uh, one of the reasons why I invited you on is because this is the ultimate manifestation 
of what Dr. Stephen R. Covey popularized as being a transition figure in someone else's life. He talked and wrote and spoke frequently about how as leaders we have remarkable ability to influence people's lives, sometimes in what might seem to be the smallest ways that could have you know, uh, really incalculable impact. You really bring to life this idea of being a transition figure. You have, you have had some success around that. You've had some struggle around that. What I'd like to do for a moment is just remind everybody that you never know when you are perhaps putting an indelible you know, imprint on someone. Uh, what advice would you leave people with on this part of the conversation around how to find that, how to recognize when that moment might be something that requires you to board the bus? Yeah, great question, Scott. You know, I, I think what I've learned in my journey, specifically through that experience, uh, is just as you said, you never know. And the power of that moment, um, what it really helped bring to light for me was a self-assessment that I've used to guide my journey. And it's a real simple question that I ask myself is, hey, who did I, who did I help feel seen today? And you know, the power of seeing someone, like we come out of the womb wanting to have a voice, wanting to feel heard. And you know, I believe we all share basic desires and that is you know, to fit in, to stand out, and to be a part of something bigger than ourselves, And often it's a very simple, kind act that can transform someone's trajectory like it did for me. And um, if we boil it down to that level of simplicity, it's simple to self-assess. It's been uh, simple for me to self-assess, not as easy to live because we're human, um, but I would encourage leaders to uh, perhaps, you know, at the end of the day or the end of their week, just ask themselves, who did I help feel seen this week? And it will, it will change your life. And more importantly, it could change the life of some, I call it some kid out there that may be feeling socially invisible like I did. Bobby, that is one of many stories in the book. I want you to share three or four more because they're, I think, very instructive in terms of us reflecting on our own leadership style. Share the story about how you have been promoted into a, from a sales role into a fairly senior sales leadership role, a director role. And at some juncture, you were called in and kind of called on the carpet and relieved of that role in a not so um, unceremonious style. Recreate that story and what is the leadership lesson our audience can learn from that today? Yeah, well, the short version, Scott, is um, I had been put into a role that I wasn't ready for. And, you know, fortunately, the organization that I was with at the time, they gave me more responsibility than I deserved, that I was ready for. And my performance over the next year being in that role, it proved that I wasn't ready for it. And uh, I got called back to corporate and as part of that discussion was demoted. And I remember the flight back. I was angry. I was uh, in denial. Uh, I wasn't shocked. However, I was looking externally and uh, when I finally came to my wits, per se, uh, after a short period of time, you know, one of the things that I had been told during the demotion is, you know, Bobby, you're not a very good business person. And that was eating at me. And uh, when I finally slowed down enough to really self-assess 
the truth to that. And it was the kind truth. I realized that I hadn't been the student that I needed to be. And quite frankly, I hadn't yet to figure out that asking for help was a sign of strength. Like as I reflect back on that, that year, yeah, I never reached out and asked anybody for help. I never reached out to other experienced people that had made the mistakes that I was making and asked for help. And I finally reached out to a very talented uh, sales leader there in Silicon Valley. And I begged her for time. I begged her to, you know, allow me to sit with her, to learn from her. And uh, after uh, a while of being persistent, she finally granted me some opportunities to sit down with her. And I fiercely applied everything she was teaching me. And a year later, uh, you know, after I started that mentorship with uh, that kind sales leader, you know, she had she had been telling me everything I needed to hear, not what I wanted to hear like a good mentor does. And uh, took me a couple of years to recover from that demotion and finally start building some depth to, you know, th things where, where I had gaps. And, you know, it, uh, it really brought to light for me that, you know, it was me and it was the truth. And I needed to take more control of my story on how I was learning and who I was learning from. And uh, it's a very valuable lesson that I haven't taken for granted since. I've digressed a few times because I'm human, yet it uh, it was a very formidable chapter of my professional climb. Uh, you're not alone in the immortal words of Michael Jackson. We've all been there, and I saw much of my own career three or four or five times in that in that sort of plane ride back, right? Really kind of coming to grips with uh, the truth, and in many ways, it helps us long term. I want to pivot to another story in the book, and I'm going to, uh, perhaps to some people's painful experience, read uh, two pages to set you up. Uh, you call it the gift owning your part. In 2001, PG was hit with a wave of attrition that lasted for 18 months. I was anxious to be, I was anxious to be losing people like we were. I started hating going to the office on Fridays because it meant someone was going to quit. I vividly recall having a conversation with a person in the company, a friend of another employee, who had unexpectedly resigned. She offered the great kindness of being candid with me. Quote, Bobby, she said, I'm very thankful for everything you and PG have done for me. But you don't see what we see. We know you care, even though you're intense. But often at PG, it feels like we're getting stuff done and only hitting our numbers. I'm going to keep going. She was right. It was hurtful and hard to hear, but I knew that somehow I was at fault. I was at a decision point again, just like when I had been demoted, only this time I couldn't quit the company. I co-founded it, even if I wanted to. But more importantly, the, the, the demotion struggle had given me a gift. It showed me we all play a part in any problem or conflict we deal with. We may not be solely responsible for it. We can't control everything, but rest assured that in some way or form we can contribute all the same. I'm almost done. As leaders, we set the tone for how everyone in the organization is guided. I was modeling a style of leadership that had failed me earlier in my career. Patience didn't come easy for me. I wanted to think I was different from other inspiring leaders, but as I reflected on what she shared, I realized that in the early years, I was inconsistent, moody, and lacking of empathy. I genuinely wanted to help 
people improve and achieve great things, but when I hand it off and do responsibility to someone, I expected them to dive in, suck it up, and be fearless. Last lines. I was experiencing the dilemma an early mentor had taught me, intent versus impact. Take that a step further. Well, the irony of you know, just sharing the demotion and uh, you know, that lesson, Scott, uh, initially when I was pointing outward, I wasn't owning my part and I wasn't understanding my contribution to that problem. But more importantly, you know, I was repeating that mistake that I vowed I would never repeat. You know, you and I talked about parenting offline. I was that parent that before I had kids would say, oh, my kids are never going to behave like that. And now they're the worst. So, you know, I have, you know, so much perspective now on that mistake because, you know, a simple principle that I have is, you know, you start right, you end right. And I was promoting very well-intended, high-potential leaders and giving them, you know, arguably more responsibility than they were ready for, like I had been given, but I wasn't setting them up. I wasn't, you know, in the words of, uh, you know, Franklin Covey's uh, trust-building blueprint, I wasn't clarifying expectations. I wasn't sharing with them what great looked like from the beginning. So because I wasn't doing things like that and I wasn't showing them that I was highly involved in their success, I was just throwing them out there. I'd repeated that same mistake and was uh, well-intended, but the impact that that was having on the organization with my distraction, uh, it was causing a lot of pain for everybody. And I wasn't being the leader that I had vowed I would be when I was going to be put in that position. And it took me about three years to correct that mistake, slow the organization down, look at every part of our ecosystem and figure out, hey, do I have the right people doing the right things and doing the right things right? Uh, that was a very difficult chapter. And I actually call that era of our journey, the era of slow, because I slowed the organization down. Growing didn't matter to me because I needed to dig the foundation. And I learned so many lessons during that era that I'm fortunate I was able to correct. And Scott, I don't know if um, I would have had the rigor and the discipline had those kind words that that employee shared with me. I mean, they just struck me to the core. And fortunately, I was humble enough to listen to it. Bobby, as a student of struggle, you are teaching us not just how to be a leader in the workplace, but also how to be a leader in our personal lives as spouses, friends, partners, mm. parents. You share a lovely story about one of your children who was struggling mm. and an experience you had, I think, with a child psychologist and how it also mm. replicates, not just as a parent, but as a leader in the workplace. Uh, I think you call it the T-chart. Would you uh, teach that lesson to us? Yes. Uh, well, I have, I have three coconuts. You know, I married a beautiful Norwegian woman and yeah, so they're brown on the outside like dad, white on the inside like mom. So they're my coconuts. And my oldest coconut, uh, when he was young, uh, you know, as a parent, you have that intuition and something didn't feel right. And he was easily frustrated. Uh, he was you know, beyond the norm and it was really acting out on his behavior. It was showing up very negatively and we were starting to get concerned. So we started reaching out to, you know, 
pediatricians and help. And you know, eventually, uh, we started going to sessions with a, you know, a specialist, a psychologist that helped us with, you know, behavioral challenges and development challenges for my son. And he had a very challenging uh, condition for dealing with stress and frustration. And uh, he had us do a very simple exercise. And that's what I call the T-chart in that he had us monitor our interactions with him. And on the left side of the T-chart, he had us track our go commands. And then on the right side, he had us stop our, track our stop commands. Well, go commands are simply defined as when you interact with your child, are you telling them things he or she can do versus a stop command? You tell them things they can't do. And as I started tracking my go and stop commands with uh, my boy, I realized that they were disproportionately stop commands. Intuitively, I was telling him what he couldn't do. Uh, and instead of focusing on what he could do. And after doing that for a very short time period, I realized that I was a big contributor to his frustration because unintentionally I was breaking his spirit and I was adding to the frustration. And like that chapter was the hardest one for me to write, Scott, because above all, I want to be an all pro dad. And it changed the way that I interact not only with my son, but that carried over for me evaluating how I interact with the people that I get the opportunity to lead. And that is, am I encouraging them with every conversation? Are my conversations and or my commands or the dialogue that I have with them are they leaving our conversations feeling encouraged? Do they leave with a sense of what they can do versus what they can't do? And over time, continue to self-assess myself on my go and stop commands. It's been transformative, uh, transformative for me. And it's not easy. It's hard. I've been imperfect. Yet uh, it's just not only did it, did it transform uh, and help my son significantly, but it continued to help me build a wonderful community where people feel energized and people feel engaged and empowered to not only be themselves, but go for it. Well, it's an invaluable insight as leaders and organizations, right? Not to take responsibility for all of the personalities, actions, insecurities, fears of our employees, but to ensure that we're setting the path, that we're modeling, that we're using the right language, even simple words we use to make sure that people feel encouraged that they know you see them, that they are seen, that they're part of a group, and that you've clarified expectations to quote you and Stephen M. R. Covey in his book, Speed of Trust. There's some valuable, invaluable leadership lessons in that story about parenting. Uh, as our time ends, Bobby, I wanna sh have you share what I think is perhaps the most valuable lesson other than the opening bus story, where you're in a meeting with some uh, of senior leaders in your organization, and someone is kind of like hinting about some concerns they have with the organization. And I believe it is like an executive team meeting or some sort. Your CFO speaks up and, and speaks pointedly to the other colleague in the room, who of course was your subordinate. And the CFO, to quote you, says, as I, I'm guessing it's a she or a he, I don't remember the gender of the he. CFO. Is it a he? He. He, he says, why don't you tell him he's wrong? You've already told me. Bobby couldn't be more open to feedback. 
Who cares if he gets pissed? We know he's gonna get pissed off. He's asking us to tell him when he's wrong. Now, there's so much to un unpack there because in one aspect, I'm guessing you have a fairly short fuse, you're very visceral, you wear your emotions on your sleeve, you created a culture unintentionally where perhaps people were lying to you or they weren't telling you the truth. And at the same time, you probably wanted to create a culture where everybody gave you the news as long as it was accurate. It's a, it's a struggle that every leader deals with daily, whether she or he understands it. Reteach the power of, as a leader, creating a culture where people feel safe to speak up. In fact, before you answer, this is what you say. You talk about how in many cultures, if I speak up, no one will believe me. If I don't go along with the group, I'll be demoted. If I'm the only woman or person of color on this project, if I disagree with the majority, they won't work with me again. If I contradict my boss, I'll get fired. These are real fears in every organization. Our, that, that meeting, uh, it was an executive team meeting, Scott, and we had, we had a pretty good grip on initiating healthy conflict and you know, we spoke very openly and uh, everything you said about me is correct. You know, I'm a very passionate, emotional Mexican man. I'm my father's son, you know, the Mexican John Wayne, and uh, I would, I've always been very outspoken. And at that particular meeting, we were arguing about a highly sensitive strategic decision, not uncommon for you know, executive meetings. And uh, we had gotten to a point in the meeting where we had having conflict back and forth with this executive that, that wasn't speaking up. And that was inside, I could tell that he was still holding back a little bit. But when we finally got to what I thought was alignment, that's when my CFO just had had enough and he exploded. And he said, hey, just tell him he's wrong. I was like, why don't you just, just tell him? He'll listen to you. And he called him out there in front of everyone. And I remember sitting there listening to that, that back and forth. And uh, he, he had his, this body language. And I, I looked at him and I said, so uh, I, like, are you afraid to tell me? And he said, no, I'm not afraid. And he went on a little bit. Scott, all I heard was yes. Like his language told, his body language told me yes. And that moment was very formidable for me because I realized that my words were and my behavior in those meetings and some of the tweaks that I hadn't yet made, they were hurting us as an organization because we weren't allowing the truth to come to surface. And I hadn't yet created the safety and you know, uh, to, for, for them to know that you're on the payroll to tell me no. You're on the payroll to tell me when I'm wrong. And that was part of the go forward and the feed forward and the changes that I started making. And I call that you know, speaking from the heart. If I didn't create the safety for them to be able to speak freely, speak openly, without fear of repercussion, then um, I wasn't truly demonstrating to them that I had the level of openness that I believe is required in every um, healthy executive team. Um, Bobby, I, I thought don't I think, was there, Scott, but I wasn't there. Bobby, I don't think there is a leader on the planet that would take pride 
or acknowledge that their strategy had resulted in creating a culture of fear where it wasn't safe to speak up. I often coach leaders to say, if you're finding that your team members are lying to you, that's not their fault, that's your fault. Because Amen. you've created a culture where it isn't safe to speak up and tell you the truth, whether it is about a readjusted pipeline or a you know, revenue pipeline or a recalibrated uh, production schedule. What advice would you give to leaders as right now they're listening intently and they're resonating with that meeting because they've had that same meeting but they've missed the cues. What are some behaviors? What does the next conversation look like for a leader to acknowledge that they may well have created a culture unintentionally where there is a fear-based um, atmosphere and they want to immediately undo that so that they can understand what's really happening in the organization so that they can make better, wiser, more productive decisions to lead the organization to a better place? What do they do differently? Well, even that meeting, Scott, what I, what I did, like I immediately uh, zoomed out and I did a deep excavation and I did a simple exercise. I went back and I just mentally recalled our meetings and uh, our, my interactions with my, uh, with my team, both as a group and, and individually. And I asked myself this question, how many times in this self-assessment have they told me that I was wrong? Have they said no to me? or have they openly disagreed with me? And there wasn't many examples that were coming to light for me. And that was all the truth that I needed to see. And so I continually do that. And uh, I've tweaked my questions. I've tweaked the way that I do it. I, I, I've tweaked when I speak and how I speak in my meetings. And you know, those simple tweaks have had a profound impact on the safety that I've been able to create. And asking for help is a sign of strength. And so what I started changing for myself was you know, how often I was actually going to my team and using language like, look, you're better in this, than this than I am. You know, this is your gift. It's not mine. What do you believe we should do here? Because I believe what I've been doing is wrong and we can do better. And so I started using that very intentional language and it helped create a lot of safety. So perhaps there's an opportunity there for leaders to go through that assessment that, that I did and that continual assessment. And uh, it's, been, it's been very, not only therapeutic for me, but fulfilling for them. Cause you know, I think for us as a leader, when you do things like that, you show people that you want more for them than from them. And you know, that's, that's at the heart of leadership. Bear, uh, Bobby, I don't typically time state, time stamp these interviews because we're not quite sure when we're going to air them. We're taping this interview, happens to be on July 16th. Today is the date that Dr. Covey passed away um, mm -hmm. as the result of a head injury from a bicycle accident um, nearly 10 years ago. But perhaps as important, it is the day after a fairly famous resignation from a member of the New York Times uh, uh, company, a woman by the name of Barry Weiss, and I hope I'm pronouncing her name right, just resigned within the last 48 hours. He wrote a fairly now popular viral multi-page resignation letter as she talked about the, the work culture she had experienced at the New York Times. Now, in full disclosure, I read the New York Times, I read the Wall Street Journal, and I read things in between to keep myself well-informed and well-balanced. I'm not pro or con the New York Times. I am a subscriber and reader to it, and I don't believe that also everything I read. 
out of any, out of any media force, um, source. But I wanted to raise that because in her multi-page resignation letter, Barry Weiss, and I'll paraphrase, basically said, showing up for work should not require bravery. And she was talking about being a centrist at the New York Times and how she had been, um, she, in her terms, basically abused by members of the New York Times staff and had not been defended or protected from the leadership. I, I, this, this, this phrase is, um, well, has silenced me, that showing up for work should not require bravery. Um, uh, you have... Um, biracial children, you're married to a Caucasian, you are a Mexican-American, you're a member of the Latino mm -hmm. community, you are the, the leader of a large organization, you have a strong voice, you are a best-selling author, you are a speaker, a coach, an advisor, you are a guest on many podcasts. What would you say to the world's leaders today on their role to make sure that it doesn't require bravery just to come to work? Well, one, um, I, I applied, you know, that 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 approach from uh, you know Barry who wrote that because I agree with it wholeheartedly. Um, you know, I, I think you know, at our core, we're all climbing our own mountain, Scott. Like there's a place that we imagine that looks and feels better than where we are today, and that's universal. Part of those basic desires, and you know that that is mutually exclusive of gender, of color, of you know, our physical capabilities and, you know, in our heart, we all have that desire to check the ultimate box. Will our story matter? And will we be able to get to that place that we imagine? And so as a leader, you know, I often, I use very simple uh, principles. One of those is you know, a reference in the book, the leadership chain is not the IQ chain. I, at the heart of that is, you know, helping myself self-assess my humility to understand the power of seeing people, the power of giving people a voice. And the impact that I want to make on people is real simple. Like when I interact with them, I want them to feel like I want more for them than from them. And then, you know, I sign my emails off with a very simple reminder, and that's give greater than take. And those principles are, vi are very easy for me to self-assess. And you know, if there's those opportunities for the wonderful leaders and you know, members of the audience to self-assess their interactions that way, you're going to be imperfect. Allow yourself space to be human. However, at the end of your story, you're going to want to check that box. And the people that you lead are no different. So you know, together is better. You know, I call it climbing as one in our community, in our culture, and you know, giving people that worthiness to be themselves and you know, my proudest symbol in our community one of my proudest symbols is you know, we represent over 32 flags from all over the world of the type of the, our internal workforce and every opportunity I get I encourage them hey proudly wave that flag and you were selected to be a part of our community you have one day to be new I tell people that you have one day to be new because on day two, you were selected to make us better. So I need to hear from you. And we, we have to do those things consistently. It never ends. Bobby, I've taken a, a longer period of time today because I could listen to your wisdom 
a long, long time. I want you to send us off with the story of the wedding and your father. <laughs> My dad, yeah, the Mexican John Wayne that I uh, referenced earlier. I was uh, on a business trip to Vancouver, British Columbia, one of my favorite cities. And while I was there, Scott, I got a call from my sister. And she says to me, you know, Bobby, you need to come home. Dad's not going to make it. We don't think dad's going to make it. And my heart just sunk. You know, my dad had been fighting uh, the battle of his life, 18 month, uh, very harsh battle with tuberculosis. And we all knew the end was near. And it was a late on a Tuesday night. And ironically, that Thursday, I was going to get on a plane to go to a wedding in Colorado Springs. Well, this call had changed everything. So early the next morning on Wednesday, I told my sister I was going to look into changing my plans. I decided to pick up the phone and call my dad. And he, you know, I tell him, hey, you know, Poppy, hold on. I'm going to be there later tonight. Uh, I, I wanted to make sure I was there, you know, in the end. And he gave me this, this silent pause. And my dad was the king of the pregnant pause. And usually it was his signal to me that, son, you're about to make a choice that I disagree with. And so I was confused, Scott, because I just told him I was going to come home to, to see him. And then he asked me very calmly, he said, you know, son, don't you have a wedding to go to in Colorado this weekend? I said, see, Poppy, but my friend will understand. I'll be home as soon as I can and another pregnant pause and then he asked me son did you give him your word and i just shook my head because i knew i was in for it and i said see you know poppy i gave him my word but he'll totally understand i start arguing and then he says to me very calmly he said you know you can change your plans if you want he said but if you show up here at the hospital i'm not letting you in the room and that stubborn old man i knew he meant it and I'm arguing back and forth, but nothing was going to uh, take him away from his stubborn stance. And so I reluctantly kept my plans. And the next day I get on that flight to Colorado. And it was the longest flight of my life, Scott. Uh, and I remember getting to Colorado Springs and, you know, I check in the hotel. I call my dad. He reassures me he's going to be okay. And, you know, ironically, I had a trip scheduled to go to New Mexico after the wedding to visit, visit him anyway. And all weekend, I had this pit on my stomach, like I, I made a choice. I was gonna regret forever. I'll never forgive myself if I'm not there, if he, if he passes while I'm gone. And you know, I went on, had a good time at the wedding and stuff. And that Sunday, I, um, I get to the hospital and I remember walking in the hospital room and I just had this, silverback gorilla jump off my back because I got to see him and I, I, I sat by his bed that whole next week, Scott, and, you know, I held his big calloused hand and you know, my dad was a magnificent storyteller. And when he had the energy, I would ask him to tell me a story because I knew it possibly was going to be the last time I got to hear his stories. And, uh, but this time I had a new story to tell him. You know, well, that Thursday, when I got to the hotel after I checked in on him, I went to meet up some friends and I met this wonderful, you know, place called the Golden Bee next to uh, a hotel where the wedding was and talking to a friend, catching him on old times. And, you know, up to the table comes this 
beautiful gray-eyed you know, Norwegian girl. And all I remember was my friend saying, Bobby, this is Rosalind. And you know, I was like a nervous wreck inside trying to keep my cool. And you know, I'm telling my dad about this girl. And I'd never told my dad about a girl that I'd met before and I dated. And so I'm scared myself and I'm begging my dad to hold on. And you know, my dad, unfortunately, uh, he, his story ended a few weeks after that. Uh, but three years after that moment, I married that girl. And I often tell, you know, people that my dad saved my best gift, his best gift for last. And, you know, uh, that gift was the courage to always choose the hardest right over the easiest wrong. And, you know, living our life that way, regardless of what's at stake, helps us build the trust and it gives us the fulfilling and hey, life has a way of rewarding us beyond what we're expecting when we choose a life of uh, honoring our word because most of my dad's life, that's the only thing of value he had and I'm forever grateful for that. And yeah, he, he saved his best gift for last for me, Scott. Bobby, your father's gift of storytelling lives strong in you. <laughs> Uh, your own student of struggle. Thank you for joining us. Bobby Herrera, CEO of the Populist Group, and the book that everyone is buying right now on Amazon as this airs. You got to make sure all your employees, all your friends, everybody in your life reads this book, especially the bus story, and decide how you are going to become a transition figure in someone else's life. The book is The Gift of Struggle, Life-Changing Lessons About Leading from Bobby Herrera. Uh, the best CEO you've never heard of, according to Patrick Lencioni. Bobby, thank you for your time today. Hell the underdog, Scott. Uh, I'm a big fan of your mission. Thank you for all you do. It's been our pleasure. I'm going to leave you there. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you back here next week on another episode of On Leadership.